Welcome to the Solo 2.0 podcast, where two sisters, Jess and Rye, focused on health and hormone balance to help you step into that 2.0 version of you. Growing up, we heard all about hormones, sometimes more than we wanted, from our mom, who is a hormone health educator. As we got older, we rebelled and experienced our own health struggles and ups and downs. But today we have businesses helping people get in tune with their bodies, break free from restrictive eating and lifestyle habits, and learn how to balance their hormones naturally. So what can you expect from this podcast? Honest conversations and hot topics that should be more mainstream, like period health, cycle tracking, non-hormonal birth control, and our unique take on fad diets and trends that aren't always so supportive for women. Plus, interviews with health and wellness entrepreneurs making a big impact in the world. Ladies, it's time we align with our powers and redefine what healthy means to us. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Solo 2.0 podcast. This is Ryan Birch. I am the co-founder of Your Hormone Balance, and I'm so happy my sister, Jess Sukan, is back. She joins me in this interview. Uh, she's been out for a little bit. She was just in Colorado traveling, so really happy she could make it so that we could chat with two fellow podcasters and really focus in on a topic that I don't think is covered enough. Uh, they both our guests today both have a really unique perspective, which helped us open our minds, and we hope that it has the same impact for you. We chat with Tara Vanderdessen, who lives and works on a dairy farm, and Natalie Kovarik, who lives and works on a cattle ranch. They also have a really interesting podcast, a Discover AG, where they talk about hot topics in agriculture, um, definitely suggest checking it out. They will explain right away how they met and their unique backgrounds at the beginning of this episode, so I won't get into that too much, um, but they also share about their day in the life on the farm and the ranch and how they stay strong despite challenges that are out of their control. Um, they, they touch on mental health being such a huge issue in farming because of issues like climate that again, they can't control. We also talk about hot topics such as uh, misconceptions about conventional quote unquote factory farming and the real practices behind these farms and ranches, which are 97% family run. Also disclaimer, cattle ranches and farms are different and their practices are different from chicken and pork. Their take on the anti-cattle movement and the many ways that cattle can actually benefit the environment. We talk about the nutritional benefits of eating beef, the difference between grass-fed, grass-finished, and corn-fed cattle, thoughts on raw milk versus pasteurized milk, the confusion around food labels, what to actually look for at the grocery store, and what to realize is just kind of BS, the USDA standards for beef touching on antibiotics and hormone use uh, in cattle, tips on eating dairy for those who are lactose intolerant, and their advice for finding meat that's best suited for you. Overall, this is a conversation around just being more educated, having more perspectives. Jess and I, as I mentioned, um, you know, had to open our mind a little bit and it was so cool to hear it directly from them. But all in all, we are all just pro food choice, you know, making sure that everyone obviously can make the best choices at the grocery store or farmer's market or wherever you're purchasing meat, uh, that is, you know, best suited for you? How does it make you feel? Um, and so this is just information to support your purchasing decisions. We hope it is helpful for you. Um, even if we have certain things we might disagree on, or we might choose differently, that's what all of these conversations should be about, right? Not just one-sided. So let us know what you think. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you've been loving any of our episodes 
episodes lately. And if you haven't, we'd love to hear from you to know why. Um, we're at solo 2.0 podcast on Instagram and our email is solo 2.0 podcast at gmail.com. We always want to be better and we always want to bring you content that really, you know, supports your life. So let us know, enjoy this conversation and we will catch you next time. How is it that you two met? I was curious that curious about that. We met online. Uh, we were back in like the early days kind of of people sharing online about agriculture. There wasn't a ton of women out there sharing about ag. And so we kind of formed like a group. And then Natalie and I's like, you know, friendship, I guess, kind of offline just like bloomed from there. And then we met in person almost, I guess it's been two years now. Um, and then kind of just things snowballed from there. That's what's so cool about the virtual world. As much as it can be stressful and it can also isolate you sometimes, um, it really brings people together too. I've met so many friends through and like sliding in someone's DM or them coming in mine. And then some of them I've never even met in person, but you can still form a really cool friendship with all of this tech stuff we have now. Yeah, I feel yeah, like Natalie good. has done a, does that really well. Like you not are good at about like, connecting with people in DMs and then like formulating friendships, relationships. Yeah. I'd say uh, in general too, for like women in agriculture, uh, social media, a lot of women live pretty rurally and so mm. like far from communities in general. And so yeah. I think social media has been like a really big blessing for them because not only do they have people to connect with, but they can also connect with other very similar, you know, like ranch wives or farm wives. And so I think social media has been like for our generation of women in ag, it's been a pretty cool tool. Yeah, well, that I am beyond excited to get into this because it's just a topic that, you know, intersects with a lot of the topics we talk about, but it's not something that is really spotlit enough on the mainstream. Obviously, you two know that, but just even looking at your podcast and all the different episodes, the reason I emailed you last night, because I was like, there are so many different ways <laughs> that we could go with this, you know, and I'm getting like so interested in every topic and all the news where tr- news trending topics. I was like, I don't want to be all over the place. I want to like <laughs> zero in on what you two are most passionate about, um, which, you know, I'm sure you're passionate about a lot of things, but it seems like the focus for today can be on uh, ranching and farming. And uh, we have a lot of questions. So I know you two are pros at podcasting. So I think we can get right into it if that's okay with you. Yep. Having said all that about your amazing podcast, we want people to check it out, learn more, guaranteed it's not something they probably delve into on the daily, Um, but we should, we should know more about it. And so, uh, you know, wanted from the top to just encourage people to head to your podcast, but can you explain how you two, a little bit about your background and how you got into the work that you do today? Yeah. So I'll start Tara here. Um, I'm actually a fifth generation dairy farmer. So I grew up on my parents' dairy farm in New Mexico. I got my degree in environmental science and then ultimately ended up dating and marrying my husband and moving back to his family farm, which is just down the road from my parents' family farm. Uh, And I dairy farm now with him and his family and our two girls. Um, And I have been using my degree in environmental science to work as an environmental consultant for dairy farms throughout New Mexico. So what I basically do is kind of, I joke, it's the back end of the dairy. So I deal with manure management, soil health, water conservation, kind of those sustainability topics that we think about. And about seven years ago, 
my daughter was pretty young and I just was seeing a lot of misinformation in the mom groups around dairy and its impact on uh, sustainability and the environment. And so I just kind of wanted a platform to be able to share what my day-to-day life was like on a dairy farm and what I was seeing from the environmental side of things. And, um, you know, that has that starting to share has really grown and changed and morphed into what it is now and teaming up with Natalie for our podcast and our other endeavors. Amazing. So like agriculture, or sorry, so like Tara, I grew up in agriculture. I was raised on a cattle ranch in Southwest Montana. So a lot of people immediately think of like Yellowstone. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, yes, that's a general, like it's a good um, picture of what it is a, like a little bit, but there's also a lot of things that are not true I'm with sure. that show as well. <laughs> um, I ended up in Nebraska, which is where I live now when I married my husband. Um, he is a, uh, was ranching down here. And so when we got married, I moved down here, I got my degree in pharmacy. And so for, before I married him and moved, I was actually living in like a bigger city in Montana and I was practicing full-time pharmacy at, um, a hospital slash clinic. And I truthfully really thought that would kind of be, you know, my, my future, my, you know, just my path, my career. And, um, I, that obviously all changed. And so when I moved down here, um, I was kind of looking for something to do because we live in a very small town. And so I just didn't have a job as a pharmacist right away. And so I started um, sharing or about a direct to consumer beef business, which I um, built with a friend back home. So we were going to, you know, sell our beef from our ranch directly to whoever wanted to buy it. And that was literally uh, my original introduction to social media. Like Tara said, that has kind of morphed and changed. Um, I no have no longer have that direct to consumer beef business, but um, I now share more personally about our family and what we do here in central Nebraska and kind of, you know, give people a peek into what ranching is really like. And then like Tara said, we do um, our podcast together, Discover Ag. So interesting. Thank you both for sharing. I would yeah. love to start. Um, I mean, I, I do have a million questions about what life on the ranch and the farm is like for you. And maybe we should start there. Can you give a little peek into a day in the life? Yeah, sure. I can start. So I live about 100 to 200 steps from my milking barn. So like my backyard is our cattle uh, and they go in to, you know, to be milked twice a day, every day, no matter what day of the week or year it is. And, um, you know, it's just, I feel like a very special way of life raising your kids on a farm, like right there, just being like your business. And it, it, it's so much more than a business because of that. Like it's where you live. It's what you do. It's just like a piece of everything within your life. Um, and so dairy is, um, you know, different than ranching. I feel like a lot of times people think of cows as all just cows or cattle as all cattle. Um, but there's definitely big differences and, and also similarities, um, between the two. But growing up, you know, on a dairy or being here on the dairy, uh, you know, we obviously have, you know, the milk trucks coming to pick up the milk where the cows are being fed uh, twice a day, every day. Um, and so there's a lot going on on the dairy farm. Sorry, we, quick follow up question on that. What sort of, I don't know how to ask this, but like, what is the production level out of your farm or like how, how much milk are you producing? Oh, that's such a good question. So uh, my husband actually has a really great uh, number for that. The town that we live outside of is about 40,000 people. And the dairy farm um, that we're on actually produces 40,000 gallons of milk a day. So every person in our town essentially could like have a gallon of milk. And so that's actually how I know that fact. It's kind of fun to be able to share that and it puts it into perspective. So we're a larger family farm. Um, There's a lot of misconceptions we can get into about large farms. 
um, people, you know, just think of large farms as like, you know, quote unquote factories. Um, when in reality, like there's a family like ours behind 95% of all dairy farms in the United States. Great. Yeah. I think that's a huge misconception. I think, I, I think a lot of times when you think factory farm and we'll get into that, um, later, but factory farm, you think of abuse and, you know, unethical practices and you don't really think of a family at all behind of it. You think of it as this like big conglomerate, you know, with all these men, I don't know. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. uh, truthfully, it's, it's really what I, what I kind of have thought of for many, many years until more recently. And that's why I'm excited to talk to you ladies too, is just kind of breaking down the barriers and the myths around all of this, because I think that I most likely have a lot of misconceptions myself. Yeah, And I want to add to that because I don't want people who are listening who have maybe thought themselves to feel like bad that they thought that. I mean, it's to no fault of anyone's, right? We're just, that's where society and our culture is now. We're just removed from where, you know, our food is grown and who is growing it. If you go back, you know, many centuries, everyone was involved in food production. And so you knew more about it. You know, you were raising it maybe for yourself or for, for your local community. So there weren't like, there wasn't that room for questions and concerns and, all, you know, all of those different things to creep in that now I feel like make their way into the food system because there is space between, you know, who was producing at the very start. And then when you're at the grocery store buying it. And so I don't, I don't blame people or want them to feel guilty for thinking that. I mean, it kind of makes sense. I have probably my own misconceptions about, you know, the, what it takes to turn my light electricity on, you know, and how we get to certain conveniences that we don't have to think about in society. Yeah. yeah. What about a day in the life for you, Natalie? Yeah. Yeah, we were actually in Tara and I were together this past weekend in Austin. We went for a podcasting conference and uh, we were a little bit of outliers there. There was a lot of people from like LA um, and we were in our cowgirl hats. And so we stood out a little bit. And so it was just easy to kind of have conversation about like, you know, what we were there, what our podcast was for and what we do. And one uh, lady we were talking to was like, uh, so interested in ranching. And she's like, tell me about it. Explain it to me. And I just could not figure out how to like appropriately explain what it's like to ranch. It just really changes from day to day. I think uh, maybe saying it's like a seasonal um, job, I guess, or lifestyle makes sense. You know, for Tara, when she was talking about dairy, it's, there's a lot more consistency there, right? So the cows are kind of fed the exact same, uh, you know, milked the same throughout the entire year. Like there's a lot more structure built into the dairy industry than there is ranching. Um, you know, we fluctuate between you know, winter on a ranch is going to look completely different for us than summer on the ranch versus spring on the ranch. And so, you know, every day we're doing something different. It's obviously all centers around um, taking care of our land and our cattle. So my husband and I um, are, do very little farming where you focus mostly on, you know, raising cattle. And so we're part of the beef chain that is called a cow-calf operation. And essentially that what, what that means is we are raising the calves up like we're the first part of the beef industry which we can get into later because mm. that's one thing i don't think people are really familiar with is that the beef industry is kind of segmented um it's like a bunch of different little parts of the beef industry come together to get you know cow from pasture to plate when that's a little bit different than if you think about like the chicken industry or pig industry like other proteins and so we're kind of at the very start of it like we'll have calves we go through calving season we have baby calves running around all the time and then it's our job to kind of, you know, raise those calves up into a certain point until um, we sell them. And and again, that just looks very, very different every single day, depending on, you know, where we're at in the year. 
Mm. It's funny that Natalie started off that conversation the way she did, because we've been on a lot of podcasts and been asked a lot of questions. And I don't think I've ever been asked what the day in the life of a dairy (laughs) farmer is. And it really threw me. I was like, where do I start? What do I even say? So great question. That surprises me. Yeah, I was gonna say, I'm actually interested. I was gonna ask this closer to the end, but I think since you're already talking about your day in the life, and obviously we'll get into all the things around agricultural and have you guys boost some or bust some myths. But um, it seems like because it's so different day to day, it's probably some days are more stressful than others or are more labor intensive. And so I'm just curious because we are a wellness podcast, do you have any like wellness rituals or routines within this industry that help you stay balanced and feel good on those days that are a little bit more stressful, especially with raising kids too and a family? Yeah, it's interesting you guys brought this up. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this because I don't think it's well known, but uh, mental health is actually pretty poor in agriculture. It carries one of the higher rates for suicide. And I think there is just a lot of, um, not good, <laughs> not good mental health. Um, you know, our industry is tied to a lot of things that are out of our control. So, you know, mother nature is a big one, uh, you know, flooding in California that can be very detrimental to a lot of, uh, farmers there right now. Um, you know, we're going through a drought on the opposite end of the spectrum, very, uh, stressful and not good for, you know, trying to raise a healthy calf right now when you don't have, you know, green luscious grass. And so, um, those things like that, we just don't have control over them. And when it um, ties to your job and then ultimately to all 330 million people across the nation, right? Because we're in charge of getting this food for you guys. So it doesn't just, it's not food we're just raising for our family. It's food we're raising for everyone's family. So there's a, I don't want to say pressure, but there's just this um, knowing that you need to get a job done and then having to go up a bunch against a bunch of barriers that are out of your control to get it done. And so I'm really happy that you guys brought up this wellness question because uh, we have a good friend in, uh, who really specializes in mental health and agriculture. And so we're pretty passionate about also talking about it. Um, I don't have major tips, I guess. I really, my husband and I, I'm blessed to have a very good relationship with him. And I guess maybe he is one of my tools is, you know, open communication and really making sure that neither of us are like carrying the burden or getting too stressed or like kind of losing sight of um, a healthy mental aspect. And so I think that's probably what I focus on most is because it's just my husband and I, we don't, um, ours isn't generational where we have like maybe my parents involved or his parents involved. And so um, it really comes down to making sure him and both and I are like really good place mentally and just having really good communication. Yeah. Natalie mentioned the generational aspect. And I think that's another aspect of the mental health is there, you know, if you're, you know, fifth generation dairy farmer or sixth generation rancher from Montana or whatever it is, there comes a lot of weight with that as well. Like this generational component that you're like carrying on the family legacy. And if you don't, like you were the generation that failed or you, you know, there's a ton of like personal legacy things that like are tied to that as well. And um, I think that probably the biggest tool is the fact that ag is now more than ever just talking about it, like opening up the conversation, trying to get these conversations out there and started. And I think that is crucial in like moving us forward in the right direction of just like knowing you're not alone knowing that there's other people that are have the same struggles as you um, and that you can find someone to talk to about it. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. I, I've seen a lot of articles about weather impacting farmers and I have just thought about how horrible that is you have no control and to your point about 
the family legacy and the pressure that is so much to hold. So kind well, of one thing yeah. on that note, um, it just got me thinking too, that I think for a lot of people that eat meat, even if you weren't at one point vegetarian or vegan, and I feel a lot of those people probably feel this way that have newly introduced meat, the mindset of like, I don't want to know where it came from. Like, I don't want to know. I just want to eat it because if I know I'm going to be disturbed and I'm not going to want to eat it. And I feel like that not wanting to know is in putting this picture in your mind of these horrible practices that are going on and these animals being brutally, you know, slaughtered and all this stuff. And so I think knowing where it comes from is actually really empowering because then you understand I think understanding where your food is coming from is really important. And also, I mean, my husband does this little ritual, which he told me about recently, where he thanks the animal before he eats it. And he's just like, thank you for your life. Or whether it's an octopus or it's a piece of meat, he does it. And so I kind of am curious your thoughts on that of, you know, people, I feel like people should know if you're going to eat meat, you should know where it's coming from and you should understand the practices. And let's open that up a little bit for conversation of what does that look like, you know, from the nutrition that they're being fed to what is a day in their life actually look like? Are they actually confined to these tiny cages and ripped apart from their babies? You know, what does it actually look like? I know the answer is that's not what it looks like, but I want to hear from you because there are so many misconceptions around it. Yeah, you touched on so many things. I like don't know where all to start. And I know Natalie has a really good tidbit. So I'll keep the first part of this short. But I do think that the closer you are to ag, actually, the less that you fear it. Like I heard a quote from a vegan one time that was like, if everyone had to slaughter their own animals, they wouldn't. And I completely disagree because a hundred years ago, when everyone did raise their own food and harvested their own animals, they did it and understood it and did not fear it. And I think that's similar with ag today. I think if people come out, like every time we do a dairy tour, people are like, this is just not what I expected. Like if you could just bring everyone out to a farm or ranch, it would just open their eyes to maybe seeing things from a completely different perspective. Mm -hmm. I've heard hunters talk about it, the same thing too, that um, they actually feel more connected and they have more of an appreciation and they feel um, they feel better about eating meat, knowing that they, I guess, were involved in the process and kind of like saw it from start to finish. And so I do think it's this interesting aspect where you said uh, people think that not knowing will be better for them, but actually knowing more is going to, it's the opposite, right? So they're kind of doing something to... That, you know, they shouldn't like if we could, as Tara said, just all be more connected and know, I think they'd feel a lot more reassured. Um, I think it's really great that your husband does that and, you know, honors and thanks um, the meal before he consumes it. I guess diving into kind of answering some more of the questions, I can focus on like the beef side of what, you know, a day in the life of a cow looks like or, you know, what that process is. Um, again, going from like pasture to plate. And I will again preface this saying that. A lot of people are not aware that the beef industry looks different than, you know, the pig industry versus the chicken industry. So the, those two, uh, chicken and pig, not to pick on them. I'm in agriculture and I support all, you know, animal proteins. I think they're very healthy. Maybe we'll get into like the nutrition aspect in a little bit, but, you know, I'm a big believer in consuming animal proteins. And so I just like to highlight that they are what is called vertically integrated. So they can be owned by the same person from start to finish. So let's say like a Tyson, 
in chicken could own the chicken from the very beginning, you know, like the egg, um, all the way to the end when they are processing themselves at a Tyson plant. So it's vertically integrated. It's very, it's one step, um, just very, you know, I guess structured in that manner. The beef industry is completely different. So we are very, very segmented. And I truly don't think we would ever get to the point where we can even be vertically integrated and owned by someone from start to finish. So it truly is um, to combat, you know, that factory farm narrative. It really is a bunch of families like handing off a product to get um, the cow at the beginning to the end stages. So it starts with a family like mine at cow calf, which was out at grass, out at pasture. Um, fun fact, two thirds of a cow's life, whether they are grain finished or grass finished, a lot of people like to, you know, get into that conversation of which one you should be eating, you know, grain finished, corn finished or grass finished. Uh, the start of those products is exactly the same. The calf is going to be raised out at pasture with its mom for about two thirds. I mean, it looks the exact same. Um, so that's kind of where my family plays a role. Then once it gets to a certain uh, age weight, it is then sold. So our family will sell it to another family, which would finish it. So that's kind of where that grain finishing process actually comes in. A lot of times when you're looking at larger scope agriculture, it's going to be what people would think of as a feedlot. So that is where the animal is then, you know, not on grass anymore. Um, they are there for probably like, I don't know, this is just average speaking, but maybe like four to six months. And that is when they will get that extra grain added into their diet so that they can, you know, quote unquote, fatten them up. So you're just kind of raising them that last little bit. You're introducing different things to the diet that would, um, you know, get them to that harvest weight quicker. Then again, that animal is then sold to uh, the packer and then the packer is going to who's process it. And so it really is this segmented um industry and um over 90 percent of it is comprised of families i obviously have no problem with people thinking of the packers like you know cargill jbs um as factories that is what you know that is the factory side i guess of the beef production but anything before that truly is you know families caring for the the cattle yeah and then i guess i'll jump into the dairy side i get following Natalie, dairy is completely different than beef and hogs and chickens as well. Like another completely different sector. Um, we actually raise all of our own calves um, from day old until they enter our milking herd um, until they leave our facility as a dairy cow and, you know, change careers as we like to say to become a beef cow. So, which is actually a really cool thing about dairy is that a dairy cow will give us all the things we love about dairy, milk, meat, or milk, cheese, yogurt, and then ultimately give us beef um, and meat at the end. And so as far as dairy cows, um, our cattle are in confinement, but I think that what that confinement looks like is very different than the picture that can be painted on the internet. So we're an open lot style dairy. So our cows are outside year round. Um, and that obviously has to do with our climate. I'm in New Mexico, so we have a pretty mild climate where I'm at in New Mexico. It, it gets not very cold in the winter and not super, super hot in the summer. Um, so our cows are out in a pen, um, just walking, you know, what you would think about like a pen, like you would have a horse in, you know, just a big corralled area. Dairy cows are very different than beef cows in this way. Dairy cows are very, uh, <laughs> I always compare them to like athletes. Like they're very particular. They've got to have a particular diet. They they are very much like the babies of the cattle world. My my brother actually transitioned from dairy cows to ranching. And he says he still can't get over how he could feed 
a beef cattle out on pasture and the beef cattle looks so great and healthy. And if you were to put a dairy cow out there, she would look terrible and he'd have to go out and get her and bring her back to the pen. Like they're just very different animals. Um, so our dairy cows actually have a nutritionist that plans all of their diets to give them a well-rounded diet of like fats, carbs, proteins, exactly what they need for producing high quality milk. Because uh, that milk, you know, they really need to get that balanced nutrition. Um, we have a vet that comes out once a week to our uh, farm that does herd health checks, checks everyone from the calves to the milking cows. Um, and then to touch on one of the comments you made about, you know, separating the, uh, the calf from the cow, that is a hot topic in dairy. And again, this is a spot that looks so different on dairies. If you see a video online of a cow upset that its calf has been removed for it, from it, 99% of the time, it's actually a beef cow that's being shown, not a dairy cow. Dairy cows are unfortunately, this is what they've been bred for their genetics. They don't make great mothers. A lot of times they can end up trampling the calf, laying on it, leaving it. You know, they'll get up as soon as they give birth and go leave to go eat and then not come back to the calf. So honestly, like it is for both of their well-beings, the cow and the calf, because of the genetics of those dairy cow that we ultimately raise the calves. And again, those are raised right here on our farm um you know they're given milk and bottles and all the things that you would you know think of um and so and then ultimately grown up to enter our milking herd wow i yeah. want to oh sorry Go ahead. Go ahead. i was just gonna say i'd love to dive into two to similar topics you both mentioned so uh natalie for you you mentioned grass-fed versus grain being a hot topic and then for tara you mentioned the diet that the dairy cow is fed. And I'd love to know more about that because, you know, we're in the hormone business and we're curious about how are, is it necessary for cows to be shot up with growth hormone given antibiotics? So these are two different topics I know, but I'd love for Natalie, you to start with your perspective on grain versus grass. And if you believe there are benefits from one or the other. Yeah. So again, um, if you're looking at, you know, a conventional traditional beef in the grocery store versus one that says, you know, grass, uh, you need to make sure it probably says grass, uh, finished. If it says grass fed, that could probably mean, cause again, the animal that was getting grain in its diet is still getting grass in its diet too. It's just a component they added in, whereas grass finished is going to be strictly, um, you know, grasses. So uh, two thirds of that is going to be the same. It looks the exact same. That calf was raised the same. It was on a, you know, out of pasture with its mom getting milk, grazing. Um, I think I always break this into two answers. So there's a nutritional side of it. Like, should, is it healthier for you to consume, um, you know, a grass finished product over the grain finish and then the environmental side. I think those are the two things people care about most. From nutritional, right now, there isn't shown a big difference if you look at the micro and macronutrients. There are some minute ones um, you could really dive into. People really like to highlight the omegas and how, you know, from a grass-finished aspect, that's going to be better with the omega-6 and omega-3 ratio, and it is higher in uh, the threes, I believe. Uh, I think pretty much across the board, any nutritionist will say that, you know, that is true, but if you're really concerned about getting omegas in your diet, you need to be seeking it from fish or something that's more adequately, you know, 
to give you the the proper amount of omegas you need anyway because beef isn't high in omega anyway so it's kind of like you're dealing with non-negligible like like it just doesn't make a difference right like yes omega or the grass finished has more omegas but the difference between the two doesn't really make a difference in our diet like it's not going to help us meet our recommended dietary allowance the rda that we need or anything um Todd and i really stand for food choice and so i you know i don't have any ask problem with anyone whether you want to choose the traditional grain finished one or the grass finished one i i never like to steer people or promote one over the other i just like to give the facts so that they can make an educated opinion themselves so nutrition there isn't a big difference to pick up one label over the other environmental i always say that there's like pros and cons to both you know so a grass finished cattle obviously has benefits from the environmental standpoint of you have a cattle out at grazing at pasture which i'm pretty uh, strong about advocating for the benefits of that because cattle get a pretty bad rap. And in truth, if you really understand ecosystems and how nature works, you recognize that cattle ruminants are actually a really important part. Uh, there's actually five principles to soil health and a grazing animal is one of the five principles. They are required. They're built in by nature. You look back at like bison grazing uh, the Great Plains that's why the Great Plains are as beautiful as they were is because we had ruminants. We had um, elk, bison, uh, deer, all of them were grazing and their hooves are doing things to the soil and their manure is doing things to the soil and they're, they're eating. The grazing aspect is doing things to the soil and, and it's all working together in this, you know, really beautiful uh, ecosystem essentially. And that's what a, a cow is a ruminant. So a cow is the same thing as a bison or a deer or an elk. Um so I love grass, you know, fed finished from that standpoint that you have an animal out at pasture longer. Um, but if you're going to get down to actually the, you know, global or the greenhouse gas emissions, people do not like to hear this, but an animal in uh, like feedlot actually has a lower greenhouse gas emission than one out at pasture because they aren't out there as long. And and the the belching actually has to do with the feed they're digesting. And so you get less of the methane emissions from an animal in a uh, feedlot. So there are pros and cons to both. Feedlot also allows us to have the food system we do. You know, we can finish more animals quicker and we can do it at a more affordable price than if we were to have, you know, everything be grass finished. And so I think there are pros and cons to both. I see the need for both. Um, I like that we as consumers have the option of both as well. Yeah. What about the corn aspect of it? You know, Corn, the corn fed part of it, because corn is notoriously very high in omega-6s. Also, I think it's 90% of corn is GMO. So, you know, when you're ingesting corn and maybe you're eating corn fed beef every single day, that is going to raise your omega-6s. And then you also have to take into consideration the person eating this omega-6 rich meat. Are they also eating processed foods? Because this meat is potentially more affordable and so I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. So here's my opinion. Um, again, going back to the cattle are ruminants. They actually have four stomachs. So they're built a little bit different than if you think about a chicken or a pig. Um, the uh, ruminant, the way they're structured. Um, again, bison, deer, and elk, if you observe them out at nature, they do eat grains. I mean, they consume that as natural part of their diet. And so people who like to argue that corn isn't a natural part of the cattle's diet, um, I just don't subscribe to that. My husband actually has his master's in animal nutrition. 
uh, ruminant nutrition. And so um, he will say the same thing that um, ruminants are, they have the ability to digest corn naturally. If you observe any other ruminant out at nature, they eat and consume grains. I think you could probably get into the aspect of like our feedlots finishing, you know, feeding too much corn or pushing it too quickly. That's a little bit different than, a, you know, a cattle out just naturally grazing and consuming grains. But as far as just a cow consuming corn, is it bad for them and they shouldn't be having in their diet? I, I do not believe that. I do not think there's any studies that show otherwise either. Uh, also, the unique thing that what I said at the beginning that they have four stomachs, um, you know, the part about eating corn it would be different than a chicken or a pig who has is monogastric, so has the one stomach, um, because cattle actually take all the things that they're eating and upcycle it to turn it into beef. And so it's a little bit different when uh, you talk about like you are what your animal eats. That is not like true for a beef cow just because of the way the ruminants are built and the way that their anatomy uh, works. And so I don't have, I mean, that's what we eat our operation. We feed our, you know, eat our own cattle. My cattle actually enter the conventional food supply chain. So, you know, they're not grass finished and we don't do direct to consumer anymore. So they're just going off to become like grocery store beef or restaurant beef. And so that's what we have eaten. That's what I've grown up on my entire life is like a grain finished cow. Um, and I, I guess I just, um, don't have any issues from it. A couple things I'll add to that corn conversation um, is I think if people also saw some of the corn, like one of the things we feed on our dairy is actually corn silage. And corn silage is where when the corn plant is growing and it's still green, we chop the entire plant, leaves, stem, everything when it's green. It looks a lot more like a Southwest salad. Like when you think of a Southwest salad having some corn in there and then it's got a lot of greenery, that's what corn silage looks like. I think when people think of corn, a lot of times they think of like corn flakes, like literally like pieces of corn and that that's it. And that's really not the case. There's a lot of corn silage, which is the entire plant. And then as Natalie mentioned about this upcycling, I think one of the coolest things about cattle is... Uh, ruminant animals is that they can turn 60 grams of incomplete protein into 100 grams of complete protein. And they are literally the only thing on the planet that is able to do that. So they're able to take these foods that we can't consume and upcycle them into complete protein. Mm. Yeah, That's amazing. I also love what you said about, did you say food choice? Yes. Yeah, because I think too, it's, it's hard to say, you know, you're eating this beef that's, you know, from technically a factory farm, but has very amazing practices the way that you do on your family farm. Um, and maybe it's more affordable. I know that grass-fed meat, grass-finished meat is not very affordable, but are you eating this meat with a higher omega-6 content? And like I mentioned before, you also have a highly processed diet and you're eating all of these snack foods that have these you know, cheap oils in them, then yes, your ratio is going to be very off. So maybe the conversation is also around mindfulness. And even if, you know, you don't have a lot of money to get this grass-fed meat, these organic vegetables, eating whole foods can still be affordable and is probably is more optimal for your nutrition than eating grass-fed, grass-finished meat, and then also going to the snack aisle and getting a ton of processed foods. So I think it's just to your point, it is about the consumer, what they can afford, and then how they choose to eat beyond that for their health. Yeah, yeah I think absolutely. a study. I think a study that we really need in the United States is instead of a vegan diet compared to an American diet or an American diet compared to a grass-fed, grass-finished diet. Like I think we've done those. I would love to see a study where it's like you can do 
grain finished beef. And then like you said, be skipping all of the other processed foods. Like, is it like when I think about our food system, I'm like, is it the red meat that's causing an issue? Or like you said, all of the additional like ingredients and all these other products that we're consuming. Like we almost need a study, which I know is easier said than done. It just breaks it up a little bit more into some other components so we can actually get some data around um, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And do you have a sedentary lifestyle? Are you smoking? Like what other factors? That's what that's where it gets really complicated, I think, too. Um, one other thing about the cow's diet that I wanted to talk about is one of the things that's really cool actually about dairy cattle, like the confined cattle, kind of on the opposite spectrum of the pasture raised, is that dairy cattle eat a lot of byproducts, which I kind of hate that word because it makes it sound like waste. But essentially, when we produce different things, like if when we produce cotton, so if you're wearing a cotton shirt today, um, when you produce cotton, there is a seed that's left over, and our cattle are actually able to consume it. And it's a really great source of protein for them. And then obviously like upcycle it. And so they do this with tons of different foods. I mean, like from grocery store waste to distiller's grain to byproducts from ethanol, tons of things that would ultimately end up in a landfill. They're able to consume and actually turn it into high quality, you know, milk and beef and those kind of products. Wow. Yeah, there is this big anti-cattle, anti-meat movement. And we wanted to ask your thoughts on that. What do you think is driving that? And what is, I mean, you've talked a lot about the benefits of cattle, um, but what do you think is driving that? And, and what do you get most frustrated about in that realm? Yeah, I think there's, um, well, honestly, <laughs> I guess Tara can add your two cents too, but I think um, social media has played a role in that. Um, I think uh, celebrities have played a role in that. And then I think just general marketing from maybe some very, um, like, I'll just say like activist groups have played a role in that. And so I think, you know, activists to start there, they, their main goal is to just end animal agriculture completely. You know, it's not like they want, um, you know, they're not advocating for, you know, humane and proper treatment of animals. They're at, they are advocating for getting rid of the entire industry as a whole. And so I think they recognize that they can get their results by latching onto some of these narratives and pushing, you know, feeding almost this narrative to people in a, a different way than saying that to a consumer. Um, and they don't care about that. They don't care what they're saying. They just care about the end goal. And so I think there's that route. And then, like I said, going to the um, celebrities and social media, I mean, I love social media. I've you know been sharing online forever and I, I think it's a really amazing tool. And um, I usually don't have many like uh, negative things to say about it. But I do think it has given people, um, for better or worse, a platform to to voice their narratives, right? And nowadays, a lot of us feel like we are the experts in a lot of things that maybe we traditionally aren't, or maybe we just share, you know, in bypassing that this is the way we choose to feed ourselves and our family. And that gets taken by every single follower as that's how they're going to do it. And there wasn't really a conversation around it. There really wasn't... Um, you know, whether that's an emotional conversation, a scientific conversation, it was just, you know, they saw a headline maybe and now they're not eating meat. And, you know, that now it, that message is, you know, prolonged and carried on. And so I think there's a lot, I think it's coming from a lot of different areas. And I really think it's dangerous from both, again, tackling it from the nutritional and the environmental side. Uh, protein is one of the most important things we can, you know, consume in our diet. And animal protein is um, flat out, I believe, and I think 
you know, studies back me up and saying that it is better for you than a plant protein. You know, it has all the essential amino acids you need. It is better, it is better um, absorbed. Like there's a ton of differences between plant and animal protein. And so for the people that say, yes, protein is very important, but we can just get it through plants. It's just not the same to me as consuming it through animal products. And so nutritionally, you know, as a nation, we do not have a calorie deficit, a problem. We have a nutrition problem, right? Like we are getting enough calories as a nation. We're not getting enough nutritious uh, products in our body. And so if you take meat, which is, you know, very nutrient dense, it doesn't come with a lot of, you know, the negative carbs and all the other things, you know, it is a whole product, right? I mean, it's a very nutritious whole product. Um, and we're taking that out of our diets, you know, we're losing, uh, we're losing protein, we're losing iron. I think um, as women, especially, we're very uh, iron deficient as a nation. So I really worry about removing animal proteins from the diet. Um, from the environmental standpoint, I, I don't know, do not know how the wool has been pulled over our eyes, but somehow we have been tricked as a society into thinking that cows are the problem. And they are actually, as I mentioned earlier, part of the solution. And so these people that are advocating for removing them, I just, they really don't understand the ripple effects of what will happen if we we take out grazing animals. They're so important for our grasslands. They're so important for the soil. Like Tara mentioned before, they're doing really great things to take, you know, decrease greenhouse gas emissions from other industries, right? So the, you know, the almond industry, the con industry, the citrus industry, all of those get to have lower greenhouse gas emissions because they don't have to put their byproducts, as Tara said, into a landfill. Instead, our cattle get to eat them. So they're very much so a part of the cycle when it comes to the land and the soil. They're very much so a part of the cycle when it comes to other agriculture industries. I just really, there are so many benefits for cattle. They help mitigate wildfires. That's why California, sorry, California, but that's why you guys have wildfire problems is because you guys don't allow cattle to graze um, and help keep down that brush and all of those fuels that act for fuels for fire. And so there's a ton of really cool things they do for the environment that are beneficial. Obviously, um, they can be a detriment. You can overgraze. You know, you can do things where cattle can be a problem. Any grazing animal could be a problem too, to the soil and the land. But that's our job as ranchers is to make sure we are managing our cattle and our land appropriately. Um, and I really strongly believe um, in the good of our, our nation as ranchers. Like I know we're all out there doing the best for our animals and our land. And so the idea of removing them really, really concerns me again from a nutritional and an environmental standpoint. I'll come in with a few facts in there. So cattle, animal agriculture as a whole in the United States accounts for just under 4% of total greenhouse gas emissions. So if you see a headline that says like, you know, cattle is the largest emitter, it is absolutely completely false. The uh, top three, so in transportation, industry, and electricity account for 80% of greenhouse gas emissions. Like that, when you put those numbers into perspective, like I just think that it, like Natalie said, it's crazy how we've gotten here as a society to think that. Um, I also know, you know, dairy and beef as well have set a lot of, you know, emission standards and goals to improve. But something Natalie and I do talk about is like, what percentage would be okay? You know, you think about 4% is the um, total greenhouse gas emissions for animal ag. Like we're working to make improvements. Even if we cut that number in half, like that's a great thing. But like we're going to have emissions no matter what food you're consuming, whether it's plant-based or animal protein, everything uses resources in order to produce it. And we have to have food in order to live. So there is some conversation there about like, I think we need to be having is like making diets, quote unquote, more sustainable or more in line with like mainstream media's wants and needs while making it less nutritious 
And so there's a lot of nuance in that conversation that like gets missed. And I think the reason is it's a lot easier to see a headline that says like cattle are killing the planet and you as a consumer are like, oh, I'm going to do my part and not consume animal protein than actually going in and seeing, you know, going beyond the headline and looking at what is the actual basis there? What is the science behind it? And what ways can I actually, you know, improve my carbon footprint besides that? Does that, I hope that makes sense. Yeah. My gosh, yes. And actually, you touched on something from a sustainability standpoint when it comes to reusing water, which is something that you talk about, green water, I believe. And I will be the first to admit that for a very long time, I preached almond milk and not preached as in like, it's the only type of milk to drink, but, you know, almond milk over dairy milk. I definitely have recommended that before. And now I know that almond milk is not a very sustainable um, process as far as water is concerned, and especially in the state of California. And I think you had posted something about that. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I do love almond milk, but it's something that recently I've actually switched over and I'm no longer drinking it because of what I've learned. So I would like to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. The conversation about natural resources and food is very interesting in water use. Um, I'll start by saying like all food uses resources, like all food uses water. It's varying degrees and they all have like pros and cons to both of them. So I, again, believe in food choice of choosing which, you know, you know, milk or milk alternative suits your lifestyle. But there is a lot of misconception about the water use around like dairy. Um, we actually reuse a gallon of water on our dairy up to five times. So it's an incredible cycle to see how many times we can actually use that single gallon of water to reduce our water use. And then another part of this conversation is the green water. You mentioned the green water. A lot of times uh, beef has a target on its back as being a really water intensive food. But the truth is, is about 94% of all water used to produce beef is actually what's called green water, which is rainwater that's going to fall from the sky, whether cattle are out grazing on that pasture or not. Whereas a lot of other foods, and I don't mean to pick on almonds because I do love a good almond, but almond uses primarily blue water. And so that is what you're going to be thinking of when you think about your aquifers and your rivers and your lakes and your reservoirs. That's that kind of water, not necessarily rainfall. Another thing in this conversation that I think we need to do a better job of is instead of comparing like a gallon of milk uses X amount of water and a gallon of almond milk uses X amount of water or a pound of beef uses such and such water is actually looking at the nutritional component. So if you were to drink a glass of almond milk and let's say it has a smaller carbon footprint, you're not getting the same amount of protein as you would get from a gallon from a glass of milk. And so you're going to have to go to another food source to then fill those protein requirements. So in the end, it took you two foods to get the nutritional composition of a single glass of milk. And so taking into account that you're like compounding your environmental footprint when you're having to consume multiple products to get the same benefits as one product. And that's not like right or wrong. It's just something we have to consider when looking at this, like using... I feel like the uh, greenhouse gas method is not ideal. I think we should actually be looking at nutrient density versus greenhouse gas emissions. What about for people that are lactose intolerant? Because there is a large percentage of people who are lactose intolerant or I know for me, there's certain types of dairy that I can eat and instantly, I mean, it happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I was like, oh my gosh, I was, I texted her. I was not okay that day. It was like <laughs> a terrible day. I was like, guys, I gotta go. I was at brunch. I was like, okay, bye, bye, bye. Um, but I can also have 
dairy, like goat cheese and even like mozzarella or some milk and be fine. And so, yeah, what's your perspective on that? Because not everybody necessarily can digest dairy the same way, you know, in order yes. to get a nutritional profile. That is such a great point. And that is exactly why I believe in food choice because certain foods do not work for certain people. Um, but there is actually a lot of options within the dairy. So you could, there's tons of um, lactose-free milks out there nowadays, which are great options. And then some products, this kind of surprises people. There are products that are actually naturally lactose-free. So like hard cheeses that have been aged, like aged cheddars are naturally lactose-free. And so a lot of times those bother people less than some of your softer cheeses. Um, you mentioned goats, uh, cheese, goats, milk. Sometimes for some people that is easier to digest, uh, based on, you know, like the composition of the goat's milk. Um, and so I do think it's like finding the, you know, the right balance for you. Um, and there's also changes throughout your lifetime. Like I know my poor mom, my mom loves ice cream and she's like, once I turn 50, I can't have ice cream after, you know, eight o'clock at night. Like there is just changes in your body and your gut health at, you know, as in different phases of your life. And so I feel like finding what works for you. Um, there is a plethora of options. Now, I think, you know, Natalie mentioned that, that we live in a world where there's tons of options. And I think that's one of the incredible things about our food system actually is how many options are out there that you can find exactly what's right for you. Yeah. Do you have thoughts on raw milk at all? Oh, I have lots of thoughts. How long do we have? <laughs> uh, well, that's just something that I've been wanting to dive into and experiment with myself just because I don't drink milk. And I'd be curious about it because I know that it has... Well, let's hear it from you. So I actually consumed raw milk my entire life until I was even through most of my first pregnancy. And then I ultimately shifted to um, just, you know, conventional, regular old milk at the grocery store. And I did it for a lot of different personal reasons. But ultimately, I just didn't think the pros of raw milk outweighed like the cons of raw milk. I am not an advocate of thinking that raw milk has some amazing health benefits that conventional milk doesn't. I think ultimately, they're both really great products. Um, I think if you choose to purchase raw milk and consume raw milk, you need to consider some of the risks that are associated with that and like know that because I think one of the things that happens is if people consume raw milk and they do get sick or have a bad reaction, they write off all milk and they tell everyone they know, you know, it's like a bad review on Yelp, like everyone knows about it and it's not like they're, you know, the food safety concerns are not there for pasteurized milk. And I, I do still think all of the health benefits are there with pasteurized milk. So I always compare it to, you know, like getting sushi at a food truck on the side of the road in, you know, wherever, like someplace you don't know, don't know the food truck, don't know where it's been. It's the same. If you're going to consume raw milk, make sure they're sterilizing their bottles. The facility is clean. You know, ask for their milk quality analysis. These are all things that that dairy farmer should be able to give you and know, like just off the top of their head, um, what it what it's like. And so just do your research if that's what you decide. But I think you can feel really good whether you choose pasteurized or raw milk. What I, I sorry, I don't even know what raw milk is. Raw milk. So milk normally. So what leaves my farm is raw milk, and so it's just. Um, the only thing that's happened to it is it's been cooled down. So milk comes out of the cow at 100 degrees. We cool it down to 34 degrees within a matter of minutes. Um, and then it leaves on a tanker to go be processed at the processing plant where it's like bottled into milk. They pasteurize it and pasteurization is where they heat it to a really high temperature for two seconds. It's very quick um, and it kills any of the bad bacteria that may be in there. Um, and it also preserves it for longer. So it has a longer shelf life. And then at the same time, they also do a process called homogenization where they break up the milk so that the the fats don't separate. So if you've ever seen like cream on top, it means it's non-homogenized. Um, and so that's the difference between raw milk and pasteurization. 
Got it. Um, okay. So if I was to summarize some of what you said, and I know in the beginning you said 90% of these farms are family owned. Is that correct? 97% uh, of dairy farms in the United States are family owned and operated. Yeah. So, so there's that and you're, and you were saying essentially that you feel that any of these practices are safe for consumption. You don't see a dramatic difference in nutritional value. Maybe there's a slight environmental difference, the pros and cons you mentioned. But when we go to the grocery store and there's some beef that's so cheap, you know, and there's such a range to choose from, do you have any thoughts on, you know, if you're trying to go, I mean, again, if, if you don't think there's a big difference between organic or, you know, a benefit really, then maybe it really doesn't matter. But do you have specifics that you would say, to look for to help guide your purchasing decisions. So this is getting into the conversation of food labels, which Tar and I talk a lot about on our podcast, Discover Ag, because food labels are they're kind of like damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like we can't live with them and we can't live out. I think they started with really good intention to help consumers understand what they are buying. And they have gone almost so far skewed into marketing tactics and consumers are actually more confused by them than they are helpful. And I almost think some labels instill fear in consumers. Like I just don't think we're at a very good place with the food system and labels right now. So um, if you really care about supporting a U.S. rancher and you want to feel really good about the product, um, I think you could try and find a rancher local in your area that you could buy the beef directly from. So find do a direct-to-consumer route, whether you... Again, I, I, you can order them online. Um, I would caution a little bit because there are some online companies that like import their beef a little bit, um, especially the grass finish. I don't think that's really well known. Like ButcherBox imports a majority of their grass finished beef. So you're not really supporting US farmers and ranchers. Um, so I think if you, if you really truly care that much about your beef, you should look for a local rancher to buy your beef from. Um, I say that on the same... But that uh, if you want to support a U.S. rancher, you're still supporting a U.S. rancher when you buy from the grocery store. Again, that's where my beef that I raise my family, it goes to the grocery store beef. Um, as far as labels, um, I just, you know, we talk about this on the podcast too. Uh, no beef is going to have antibiotics in it. So you don't really have to worry about buying beef that has antibiotics or one that doesn't. So that, I mean, the label is true. There's no antibiotics in the beef, but no beef has antibiotics in it. So that's not a label I would really pay attention to. Uh, natural isn't really a label either. I think it has something to do with like preservative dyes or coloring. I'm not even... Tara, do you know what natural actually it, It's not regulated. It doesn't. Yeah, so I wouldn't look for natural like that. If it says, you know, natural beef on there, it's it's nothing different. Like that's just something they put on there to mess with you. Not mess with you. I shouldn't say that. I, I, I just don't know why it's on there. It's just another marketing Yeah, tactic. it is greenwashing marketing tactics. Yeah. Um, organic will have a difference. So organic is USDA regulated. Um, and that comes down. That is not a nutrition thing. So I think people sometimes associate organic with like healthier. That is not true. It's actually just a farming practice. Um, but, you know, if, if you dive into the organic conversation and that's really important to you, you could look for the organic label on beef. Um, other than that, I don't know if there's any other labels on beef to really look for. Um, uh, another, sorry to just keep throwing more on your listeners, but um, we, I think people are afraid going back to like the importation exportation. I think people are afraid that the beef they get at the grocery store um, isn't American raised. 
We do import beef, but it's mostly trimmings, uh, lean trimmings to mix with our ground products. So if you are buying like steaks or, you know, cuts like that from the grocery store, um, oftentimes it's going to be from a U.S. farm and ranch. We're not really importing like, you know, cuts like that from other nations. Um, the ground beef would be a big difference. So going back to that conversation of, you know, whether you're buying directly from the ranch or not, that is one thing that is a big difference. So like if you bought a cow directly from me, your steaks, your hamburger, your roast would all be one animal, one animal alone. Like I could tell you that was this animal that was butchered. It was, you know, number 434 or whatever. And you guys would know that it all came from that cow. When you get to the grocery store, again, that ground product is not one animal. So the what they're doing at the plant is they're just combining all the animals that came in that day and grinding all of the animals together. And then they're usually adding in that lean beef that we imported from other nations to get that. Because, you know, people want, I don't know what you guys shop, but like people want, you know, 70-30 or 80-20, you know, our beef on an, like if you bought directly from me, um, ours wouldn't be that lean. You know, mine, my beef from our, my freezer is not that lean. And so that's what we're importing is those lean trimmings to make that ground hamburger leaner. And so that would be a big difference between grocery store beef and the direct to consumer beef. Obviously, also, you know, your farmer, like you can ask the rancher all the questions you want when you're buying direct from the rancher. And, um, you could ask what the animal got fed. Like you would have all of that access to information, which again, you don't have at the grocery store. But for anyone listening, I really, truly want you to feel good and safe about going to the grocery store and buying beef. Um, I really don't want you to be afraid of the product. It is not unhealthy for you. It is not. Um, it was raised by a family. I can guarantee you that it was raised by a family um, behind that, you know, that animal. And so I just don't want you to feel bad about buying. And um, I hope my, I guess, my explanation of some of the labels you could look at kind of make that an easier process for you. Definitely. Um, some of the confusion, though, comes from there undeniably have been factory farms that have confined animals to small spaces and there's been inhumane treatment to get these animals to market faster. So how do you suss out? Because those clearly aren't the family owned ones that you're talking about. I mean, I or they could I, be. I mean, just because it's a family doesn't mean I mean, who knows? But I'm saying like so a lot of a lot of that goes back to what I was talking about with the difference between chicken and pig and beef. Um, so when people are talking about, you know, confinement, um, that's just not the beef industry. Like we were segmented. Um, the cages would be chicken. So people are worried about like my I've never like cattle cows don't go in cages. Um, so a lot of that. um factory farm lingo and fear i think is actually coming from those uh, when i talk about those vertically integrated the pigs and the chicken and they just get crossed over into the beef section i have personally never toured a chicken plant i have never been to a pig processing facility so i am not going to speak to your listeners right now about like labels they could look for on you know pork or chicken that would help them distinguish between you know the practices that were raised in those different segments but when it comes to beef um, there is not a factory until the until the packing plant. Uh, I think there is debate of whether a feedlot is considered a factory or not, but that's still an animal outside. They're just on dirt, not grass. Um, and there's just more of them because they're finishing them than they would be out of pasture. And so I just, uh, there none of those um, fear, things you fear are really in the beef industry. Okay. So, Does that help? Yeah, very much so. Maybe I'll talk a little bit on the milk side at the grocery store briefly. Um, 
I personally buy the cheapest milk on the shelf at the grocery store, whatever is on sale. And the reason I do that is because all milk on the shelf is held to the same safety and quality standards. Um, There's a lot of labels on, or a couple labels at least on milk that I think people have questions about. The biggest one is probably RBST. Uh, Fun fact, there is not milk on the shelf anywhere in the United States from cows treated with RBST. So it's actually like a non-issue label anymore, but consumers still look for it. So that's why we still put it on the bottle. Um, and one of my favorite things about the dairy industry is if you want to buy, you know, local from a local farmer, dairy farmer, buying the plain old conventional milk, uh, actually on average comes from a farm less than a hundred miles from that grocery store. And it takes about 48 hours for it to get from our farm to the grocery store. So it is a very like dairy is one of the most local products you can get at the grocery store without it having a label saying local or anything or getting it at a farmer's market. It is extremely like comes from a farm very close to where that city is at and um, where that grocery store is. That is really interesting. Final question. And this, you know, there's debate on this. There's not necessarily a lot of studies um, either way, but yeah, again, we're in the hormone business. We we have seen women whose test results are very high in estrogen, men as well, um, for you know, who are consuming a high amount of dairy or beef. And sometimes that appears to be a factor when they're consuming a high amount of cattle injected with hormone. Um, you know, but again, it's not like uh, studies don't say definitively. Either way, um, or, you know, there there's opinions on both sides. So is it necessary to shoot them up with hormones? Um, what's your opinion on that? So from the dairy side, I feel like a lot of the conversation around hormones came from the RBST, that, that was, it was a naturally occurring hormone. It was used mainly, I think, in the 80s and 90s. I, my dad said the last time he used it was, I think, in the 80s. Um, so well before I was a part of a dairy farm. Um, but it is again, no longer being used. So I think some of these conversations we're still having are based on like old research or old information. Um, there was not anything like unsafe about RBST, but it was very much a consumer driven thing. Consumers did not like it. They did not feel comfortable with it. And so farmers, I mean, if there's one thing farmers and ranches are good at, it is giving people what they want. And so dairy farmers saw the need to remove that product and that's what we'd have done. I think the last year that it was that any you could use RBST was like 2020. But even before that, there was very, very, very minimal use. Um, Most plants would not pick up your milk if you were um, using the hormone RBST. So um, kind of going, I guess, to Natalie's like last point that like, this isn't something you like that needs to be a concern right now in our food system, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. The other problem with labels too, and Tara and I talk about this a lot, is um, once a consumer is used to looking for a label, if someone doesn't put them on the product, then the consumer assumes it's in there. And so I think that's where we've gotten with like this no antibiotic, no growth hormones, and like whatever other label is in there. It's like um, people are putting that on their beef packages or their milk, even though they know it's not really an issue, but they feel like they have to because now consumers look for it. And I was actually talking to a family that is in the direct-to-consumer beef business. And they were like, we would love to not have to advertise like no antibiotics, no growth hormones, because we don't really think that's a problem within the industry. But if we don't, then we're the only direct-to-consumer 
beef company that doesn't put that, you know? So it's kind of like, don't hate the player, hate the game. And right now our food marketing game is that the more labels we can give a consumer that makes our product, you know, seem better, that one's going to be the one that's chosen. And I, I really believe that actually greenwashing and labeling is the issue, not our production um, and management as like ranchers and farmers. Like I, we're doing good on our end. I think it's the labeling and the marketing that has really misconstrued all of this and made it more of a problem. Are you saying that you don't use hormones or that's generally not used? Yeah, I'm not super familiar with growth hormones in the beef industry. Um, I, like I couldn't tell you the percentage of, uh, I guess, operations you know, families, cattle, ranches that use them and who doesn't. Um, we don't use them on our operation. And like I said, I, I couldn't actually tell you if that, I, I guess, more information about that. Yeah, that's fine. I know that's one of the components of the organic label is that it's definitely, they don't use hormones and there are certainly farms that do. Um, so I think from a consumer standpoint, when when concerned about your hormones and what you're ingesting, that is a a part of the conversation, but that's great to know that on your farm, it's just not even something you need to do. And, and that's probably that's, more common than we think. Yeah, and I think that goes back to what I said that like, if you really care about some of those things with your food, try and just buy local. Cause I don't feel like labels have the best intentions for you. I actually think they're really misleading. And even like with organic, there's a lot of organic fraud. Sometimes if you're buying organic, you may not even buying organic, unfortunately. Like, uh, so if you really care Find the farmer or rancher so that you can ask them, like, are you using this? What are you feeding? Like, to me, that is the best route. Like, if you really care about your food product to those micro levels and you want to have those answers, um, don't try and find them from a label in the grocery store. To me, try and find the local farmer or rancher, which again, I know is easier said than done. Um, but go that route. If you're going to go the grocery store route, in my opinion, I don't believe in paying the extra $2, $3 a pound for that label that I'm not even sure what the label actually means. And the label is maybe just a label that isn't the difference between the one you're paying $2 less for. Like that's my viewpoint, I guess, on yeah. in the food spectrum. And we well, have farmer's markets. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a huge proponent for buying direct from the farmer rancher farmer's market. Those are really great things. Um, but again, I also want people to feel as a, as a U.S. nation, I do believe we are very, very fortunate to have a safe, abundant and affordable food system. And I don't want you to go to, there's obviously you walk in a grocery store and I am not saying there are not healthier products to choose than others. But for me, when it comes to me, I rank whole foods as the healthiest. And I don't think we should be having conversation between um, if you're going to buy the no antibiotic beef label, that doesn't matter. And then go down, you know, and shop some of the highly processed foods. It's like, buy the whole foods you know that's what the products we should be buying in the grocery store and those are the ones that um, i want people to feel really good about buying because it did come from you know u.s farmers and ranchers that's a really important point. i think it all wraps up into that bow of food choice what you said of we all have the choice to choose what we put in our bodies and i think it's really important that we have the knowledge and the understanding and that we also sometimes question our own viewpoints and ideals and you know i'm doing that here today i think it's been really empowering to learn from both of you because a lot of these things I had no idea about. And I'm going to go down the rabbit hole of listening to your podcast and looking at more of your posts because I do want to know. I do want to be informed. And I think the average consumer wants the best for their bodies too, but they're very confused. 
because there's so much conflicting information out there and they're very overwhelmed, not just about labeling, but about everything. Like, should I be keto? Should I be paleo? What on earth should I do? Should I be vegan? And we all really have to, you know, seek out this information, become our own advocates, and then try it out and see how we feel. Because at the end of the day, we can read whatever we want, but we're the best science experiment (laughs) there is. Like we can read all the science behind it, but if we eat a food and it doesn't make us feel good or our hormones become completely out of balance, that's something to look at. And we, we, it's our own bodies. So we get to choose, but I think we need the, the knowledge and the power. I love I'm so that glad you, you said, oh, I bet we're going to say the same thing. I'm <laughs> so glad you said the word empowered because I think the goal of our podcast, Discover Ag, is we want people to leave that podcast feeling empowered, confident, knowledgeable. At the end of the day, again, pick the food that works for you, but just have that confidence and feel empowered at the grocery store to know what decision you're making for you, your family. Yeah. And I, I was going to say, I love that you said, ultimately try it out and then make the choice for yourself. That's why Tara and I stand for food choice is because like you said, uh, that's why I get a little bit upset with like people who push vegan and vegetarian um, nar- like narratives as the only option. And that's why I get upset with like meatless Mondays is because I don't think we should be inflicting uh, a food diet on an entire population. I think yeah. what works for one person may not work for the next. I think a pregnant female needs a completely different diet than a 10 year old, you know, adolescent, than a 60 year old male. And like we already talked about, there are people who have different things with their anatomy that like, I just don't subscribe to the idea that one diet fits all for 330 million people within our nation and uh, and then add on like the numbers for globally, you know, what is it? 8 billion or whatever. Um, Like you can't tell me that there's one diet for everyone for that. And so ultimately, like Tara and I said, we just really want to help people better understand food practices, who is raised, you know, who is raising their food, how it's raised, so that you can go to the grocery store and make the right choice for you based off of your budget financially, off of what is important to you. And then also, like you said, your body. What is your body telling you when you eat these foods? Do you feel good or bad? Like which ones should you put in your body? You know best. Yeah. When you put restrictions around any food and these really strict rules and you decide something is good or bad then it creates so much stress and shame and that can manifest as illness in the body. And so it's really nice to know, you know, there, even this term may be not the best, but of all the terms I've heard flexitarian, where it's just like, I choose what I want based on the season of my life, instead of putting myself in a box to where then I feel restricted, or I feel like I can't step outside of that. And there's a lot of shaming from you know, different groups where it's like, oh, you were vegan and now you're not, you know, and shaming that person to feel terrible about their choice not to be a vegan anymore. And I'm sure the same is true on the flip side with carnivore diets and things like that. And so it's just like, who are you to say what somebody else should or shouldn't do? You can suggest and give the information and help them to try different things to hopefully lead them down a path that's going to work for them. But at the end of the day, it's up to you. So I love that you both talk about that so much and are passionate about it as well. Okay. Well, thank you both so much for your time. I really have, it's opened my mind quite a bit. And one thing you mentioned that I think is an important point for everyone to really listen to is about our government's food standards on a whole. The fact that like, we don't have an like certain things are not allowed. So we can trust just even in that, like we have a good system. And then, you know, getting local and really understanding where your food is coming from is like, a bonus and a great thing to begin to do. Uh, so thank you for that. To end, we know you have a podcast, you have very engaging Instagrams, and I read that you have a docu-series as well. Can you uh, share a little bit about that and just how everyone can find everything that you're doing? 
Yeah. yeah so can- obviously, if you're listening to this, you are a podcast person. So the best place that you would probably enjoy following us would be over on our podcast, Discover Ag. Uh, we're a Thursday podcast. And the premise is that we take um, kind of the top three trending topics in the ag and food space that week. So it's kind of headlines like, what is the New York Times talking about? What is the Washington Post? Maybe it's um, a post on social that's going viral that's about the food or agriculture. And then we kind of give you our perspective from within the industry. We kind of felt that like a lot of these, you know, online platforms or, you know, magazines or whatever it was, were all coming, you know, they're written by someone in New York and they're talking about what happened on the farm, right? Or the food practice. And we just felt like there should be a resource out there that is actually a farmer and a rancher talking about ag, you know, and food. Um and not the person in the in the urban setting. So if you are the type of person that sees, you know, food headlines and has questions or concerns, like our podcast, that's what we do. We break down those things so that you guys can better understand them and then feel more connected and like Tara said, empowered in, you know, confident in in the food system. Um, we both do have personal Instagrams. Mine is my name, Natalie Kovoric, and Tara's is her name, Tara Vanderdusen. Um, and then, yeah, our docuseries is in the pilot stages right now. So we filmed uh, the pilot episode last fall, and it's essentially what we would love to pair with our podcast. So we'd really love to visually bring, you know, like right now we're kind of bringing the farm and food and all that discussion to you through your ears. And what we'd love to do is pair that and bring you guys onto actual farms and ranches across the nation and show you, you know, how cotton is raised and what, you know, what it does take. We, you know, we could go to a chicken plant. We could go to chilies and harvest it in New Mexico. And, and I mean, there's just so many, right? If you think about our food system, there's uh, it's a plethora of options to investigate and, and cover of the practices into them. And so that's what that is. And so we shot our pilot episode and we're kind of in behind the scenes doing all the work to um, get that to the next step where it becomes an actual show. Ooh, that's amazing. Good luck. That sounds fascinating. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah.